Welcome to the Sweet Podcast with me, Mitchell Willis, and him, Michael. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm all right. It's nice to be back, isn't it? Yeah. Two pods in less than two weeks uh, after after a little break, and quite a mixed bag of football this weekend. Yeah, FA Cup, Premier League. Uh, we've got goals, plenty, in fact. Uh, some movement in the league, uh, a bit of controversy in the FA Cup with everyone's favourite pain in the arse at the centre of it. Yeah, VAR by any chance? Yeah, VAR. Um, four winners though. Draws been made for the semi-finals, and uh, yeah, we've got them to look forward to next month, as well as England back in action this week. And I think we'll have a, a bit of a chat about that later. But first of all, Premier League roundup, and we've got a new league leader. We have indeed. After Liverpool beat Fulham two-one at Craven Cottage, but it wasn't really all plain sailing, was it? No, I think they looked comfortable for large periods of the game, the first half in particular, but. Plenty of the ball without really, you know, finding the real cutting edge. Yeah, I, I think that both Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson got forward well and they obviously wasted some chances and it wasn't really until Sadio Mane continued his hot score and run with the opener that Liverpool looked like the team that we've kind of expected them to become in recent weeks. And I I feared for them a little bit when when Fulham scored because it was, it was a a position that Liverpool haven't really been in for a little while, trying to find a late goal against the side that you would expect them to beat. And I think that the Bayern Munich performance took a huge amount out of them. Yeah. I think that they were absolutely brilliant in that game and they deserve an immense amount of credit for the way that they went there and actually played to win rather than playing for a one-all draw, which would have taken them through. And it, it was probably a bit of a hangover from, from that game. You saw with the Manchester United game against Arsenal last Sunday after their game away at PSG, it, it took a lot of a lot of it out of them as well but Liverpool got through this game and, and towards the end it probably should have been three or four yeah I think at times they were possibly a little bit complacent as well I think maybe they were overconfident and you know who can blame them going to Fulham nowadays but um, I think you know if you look at Mo Salah for instance he was infuriating throughout the whole game I think had he um, squared a couple of chances shall I say then potentially they'd have been kind of three or four up and I think it's just really frustrating because he obviously wants to meet the expectations that he set last year, and I think you know he's just going through a bit of a barren patch. But he still offers a lot to the team, and I think you only have to look at the way that they played yesterday in spells, at the very least. He was still the kind of focal point with that, and you know he'd have willing runners coming off him, and he just wouldn't use them. Yeah, I think he's he's probably trying a little bit too hard at this stage, and it's difficult because you get into a little bit of a rut, which by his standards, a few games without a goal is a rut, and when you see the likes of Mane and Firmino scoring goals um, around you, you want to be part of that. But he's got to be careful not to become greedy um, because that's where the fans and, and yep. also some of the players will start to resent what he's bringing to the, to the, to the team. And I, I think you look at his performance against Bayern Munich and I think he was an absolute standout during that game. He got an assist for Mane's goal and he just looked to be able to find space at absolute ease. I think in this game... Fulham tried to close him down a little bit more, tried to put two men on him, which gave more space to the other attackers. But he has to understand that with the reputation that he's built, that will happen. And there are teams who will double up on you and try and make it difficult. But when you get in a position and it's probably 70% likely that your teammate's going to score versus 30% that you might, then you have to look for that pass. Can you imagine if they drew the game or, or even lost that game you, you know you would instantly point the finger at him and, and that would be a real shame yeah I, I I think everybody said that he would struggle this season to to try and get anywhere close to what he did last season I think you have to give him immense credit for what he's managed to do this season he's got an absolute boat full of, of assists and goals and it's just the last couple of weeks that have seen his head probably drop a little bit because he's he, he's not got to that standard but the most important thing from a Liverpool point of view is the victory and if you can beat teams with having one of your most influential players having a poor game then you'll take that all day long and Jurgen Klopp probably needs to sit down with Salah and just have a little bit of a chat with him. It, it might be an idea to take him out for a game, it might be an idea to, to give him that, that that opportunity to, to have a game off and, and, and maybe re- refresh. Obviously it's the international break now and there'll be an opportunity for those players to to, to have some time with their national teams and, and the ones who aren't going away will be chomping at the bit to try and get into that side. I think the emergence of Adam Lallana has probably given Klopp a, a, a bit more 
depth, which we said at the start of the yep. season that squad was missing. And if Salah does need a couple of games out, then he's got a, a pretty good replacement in Lalana or someone like Shakiri who just offers them a little bit of something different. So, as we say, Liverpool go back to the top of the league, two-point gap. Crucially, having played one game more than Manchester City now, and City visit Fulham next, and, and Liverpool host Spurs. And I think that that's a real interesting weekend because we expect Manchester City to go and win at Fulham. Um, obviously, Spurs, we know, have both Manchester City and Liverpool and could still have a say in the title. What, what do we reckon for those games? I know it's very early. Of course. I mean, there's going to be two weekends that are pivotal between now and the end of the season. It's, it's the weekend that's coming up after the international break and then it's when Manchester United play Manchester City. And I think yep. that they're the two weekends in which the, the league will be won and lost. And I know that people say, obviously, it's over a season, but you look at the way that these two teams have gone gone at it and the, the, the fact that they're essentially just playing a game of, of, of first place tennis at the moment I think if if Manchester City beat Fulham and if Liverpool drop points against Tottenham then I think that probably will be it I, I, I don't see them coming back from that because City then know that it's in their hands and that would give them um, a lead going into the Manchester derby knowing that a point's probably going to be good enough and, and I, I don't know I, I think Liverpool deserve like I said earlier a massive amount of credit because they do seem to, to to come back and prove people wrong. But I just think that it may be a step too far if they don't beat Tottenham. What about you? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I I agree to be honest. I think uh, I don't think it will go to the last game of the season. You know, as it stands, if it carried on like this, both sides won every game. Then then effectively it does. I don't think it will. I think somewhere one of them, if not both of them, will slip up. It just depends how many times. Obviously, they both got the Champions League to contend with as well. Obviously, Manchester City, as we'll get on to, still another competition. I think that there's probably um, unlikely slips in there as well. I'm not sure it's necessarily the Spurs and Manchester United games that will make the difference. I think it's probably going to be, you know, one of those kind of mid-table side. You know, someone like Leicester will just spring a bit of a surprise winning away from home or something. Yeah, that's a good point. We need to move on, though, to London, to the London Stadium, where West Ham weren't overly comfortable in a, a tightly fought 4-3 victory over bottom of the table Huddersfield. Yeah, Huddersfield, of course, battling Fulham for the wooden spoon. And as you look when you're Huddersfield, you score three goals, just the eighth time you've scored more than once in 69 Premier League games, and you still lose the game. And it, it will be very frustrated. You know, they showed some character coming from behind. And then to get 3-1 up, it was, it was dreamland, really. You know, the fans would have been absolutely buzzing with that. And... You know what you expect from Huddersfield is that little bit of organisation, the ability to be able to see out a situation like that, and yeah, it just didn't happen, did it? It didn't, but they will take positives from the game, especially in the fact that they may have unearthed a bit of a gem in in young Carl and Grant. He got two on his debut, including an absolute stunner from twenty five yep. yards, and some West Ham fans at that point left the ground. That that's good because we've seen in the past that some West Ham fans are. Um, Careful, Mitch. Yeah, I'm just trying to ch- choose my words. Are um, fickle? I didn't want to say fickle. I didn't want to say fickle. Just, just angry. Just, just really angry. And you know, they vent their frustrations still in the stadium, um, in in various different ways. And yeah, to just leave is is probably a little bit nice for the fans, to be honest. And then obviously Huddersfield started to show the soft centre that that's got them yes. into the position that they're in at the moment, didn't they? They they conceded. One really poor goal, and um, I think then the two late goals from Hernandez are avoidable. I'm not really sure what Lursal was doing for the last goal. Tried to do some sort of Superman punch and, and missed the ball completely. And we've seen how prolific Javier Hernandez can be with the back of his head. Yep, That's probably the uh, the most memorable goal that he scored in his time at Manchester United was the, the old back header away at Stoke. And it's just... It's just frustrating for Huddersfield because to get 3-1 up, you should be able to manage a game away from home. And we know, like you've said about the West Ham fans, they can get on the team's back yep. and you can use that to your advantage as an away team at that stadium. But but they didn't do that. And I suppose that kind of tells us all that we need to know about how they're going to fare between now and the end of the season. The the, the important thing from Jan Seavelt's point of view is the fact that he's got players there who he will be able to re- rely upon in the championship. I can't see that team getting picked apart. No. There may be a couple of bids for people like Aaron Moy, and I, I think if they hold on to someone like Steve Mounier, he could probably be quite prolific in that division. But they 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 need to plan now for next season because I think any chance of them staying up is completely gone. 
think West Ham needs a plan as well. I think you know we said last week about them being consistently inconsistent, and that was that was all in the space of one game for this one. You know you've got a lot of experience in there, and I think it was the experience that probably kicked in. You know we've mentioned Hernandez, I thought Sami Nasri as well was um, you know made a real difference, and it still shows a, a level of quality at the, at the the kind of highest level of the Premier League that I don't think we necessarily expected from him anymore. And I think the frustrating thing with West Ham it's almost that it's when they can be bothered and and I think as a fan as a manager that must be one of the most frustrating things you know we both support teams that have struggled in recent years and it's not necessarily for want of trying whereas I think if you look at someone like West Ham they they easily kind of get themselves out of trouble when they're down there and, and that's that just must be infuriating. I think it's a big season for them next season I think Pellegrini's done a great job there to turn around what was a, a relatively difficult season early yeah. doors and for them, it needs to be a, a, a season of consolidation this season and then try and push on from that. I think they're about ninth in the table at the yeah. moment. So I think if you'd have asked the West Ham fan at the start of the season, they probably would have taken that. What they've got to do next season is try and get into the bracket with your Wolves and your Watfords because ultimately that's where that side should be going. Another interesting result at Turf Moor. Burnley won Leicester 2. and The game got off to a rip-roaring start when Leicester were reduced to 10 after just four minutes when Maguire sent off. And... You know, to to still go on and pick up all three points is is fantastic. The manner that they've done it is is you know wonderful to see for Brendan Rodgers, but it'd be so frustrating for Burnley. Yeah, I think that when you go up against a team like Leicester, who you know are going to play on the counter attack, then it's difficult from the start for Burnley because that's the way that they like to yeah. play. And obviously, the game completely flipped on its head as soon as Harry Maguire gets sent off. You're then in a position where you've got to go and do the attacking and doesn't really suit the style of Burnley or Sean Dyke. 62% possession, which must be up there for the most they've ever had. Yeah, and, and, and that's when you consider the amount of long balls that they play as well. Yeah. They don't hold on to the ball too often, and they they showed glimpses, but never really, other than a few penalty appeals, never really threatened that Leicester side. And it was it was kind of inevitable towards the end that they may come into it a little bit more, and I, I'm not convinced that they merited the victory. They probably deserved the point from the game. But psychologically, now Burnley have got a two-week wait until the next game, and that must be so difficult to pick those players back up after that, given how great they've been in recent weeks and months. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, they've lost the last four after going eight games unbeaten, and it really isn't a good time to start sliding. And, and to lose like this, as you say, with having a few weeks afterwards, it is really, really frustrating for them. And, you know, this is this is their kind of extra game as well I guess you know the teams behind them still need to play some games as well so that that's crucial I think Leicester will probably look at this game and think it was probably the middle of the park that actually won the game I thought Madison was fantastic he scored a great free kick uh, Telemans has, um, has, has taken to the Premier League like a duck to water very mature performances and, and you know given the fact that they had to kind of change and, and adapt a little bit once the changes have been made you know Damari Gray had gone off for Wes Morgan and and that just takes that little bit more pace and creativity out where they have to almost double up on their jobs then you know they have to be solid but they also still have to create as well and I would say they probably took advantage of, of what I would say is arguably Burnley's weakest area of the pitch in the middle of the park and um, yeah it, it was definitely encouraging signs for Brendan Rodgers and, and I think you know there's a lot of excitement to be had over the next season couple of seasons for Leicester yeah I, I totally agree I think with the players that they've got coming through that, that, that side the younger players that they've got not necessarily from the youth sides but the players that they've signed who yeah. are at an age where they're only going to improve the likes of Daniel Amati and um, you've mentioned Damari Gray already James Madison they've got players who are nowhere near their peak yet but they're showing real signs of development and I don't think that Leicester will struggle to keep players there because they are a level just below the sort of top six or seven and and that's where Brendan Rodgers will hope to go with that side next season presuming that he he gets the funds that he's been promised before agreeing to go there. West Morgan scoring the winner in the 90th minute showed that tremendous character and Speaking of important late goals, a 94th minute equaliser from ex-Bournemouth player Matt Ritchie to earn Newcastle a 2 all draw down at Bournemouth. Yeah, and uh, a really weird celebration because initially he looked <laughs> over the moon and then I think he realised yeah. where he was. And um, 
we've always said we we don't necessarily like to see players not celebrating against their old sides. I think that you you can just put it to one side for ninety minutes, and then if you need to put something out on Twitter afterwards or yeah. something like that, that's fine. But it's um it's funny when you see them almost forget the circumstances, and I think it was probably a merited equaliser in the end. Bournemouth dominated the game for for spells. The weather was absolutely atrocious, but. Newcastle will take great heart from being able to come back against a side who are decent at home. And um, they've shown in recent weeks that going behind in football matches doesn't mean what it probably did for them before Christmas, which was that heads would go, players wouldn't be able to put in the same level level of of, of fight that we've seen of late. And really important from Rafael Benitez's point of view is that they're picking up something on the road as well. We've seen how great they've been in recent weeks at home. They've won five on the spin. To go to Bournemouth and lose would have been a really frustrating step backwards for that side and I think that getting that last minute equaliser we've we've talked about the psychological impact of Burnley conceding that last minute goal for the next two weeks that, that place will be buzzing the players yeah, that, that, that stay there will be absolutely looking forward to their next game and I'm still not convinced that Newcastle are fully out of the relegation picture I think the point is a valuable one but what it does mean is that, that they can build on this result rather than worrying about the next game yeah I mean I've, I've literally just heard an interview with Matt Ritchie on the, on the way around to recording and um, you know he was talking about how Rafa Benitez is, is so calm you know whatever the circumstances are his approach is exactly the same throughout and um, I think you know that naturally will rub off on the players, and I think, as you say, to to have the confidence now with with a couple of weeks off, um, they're looking to build on this. You know, they had a very similar end to last season as well, and they ended up kind of tenth or eleventh, I think it was, and and that was after a very similar position. So, I think they'll be looking for that, and you know, in someone like Solomon Rondon, they've got someone who is just becoming more and more reliable and more versatile as well yeah so you know he's got a free kick and I genuinely would have thought he'd taken free kicks with his head I think we said that earlier in the season <laughs> it just you just don't expect it from him but it clearly he's got a, a hell of a lot more ability and, and again Matt Ritchie was just saying exactly the same thing that he's um, been a breath of fresh air Almiron as well I think you know he is highly rated and, and will become a fan's favourite there for absolute sure you know he'll be the new I thought you were going to say the new Alan Shearer there. (laughs) I think that obviously we need to mention Bournemouth because they're attacking front three. We've talked a lot about um, David Brooks, we've talked a lot about Ryan Fraser and about Callum Wilson, but Josh King probably deserves more plaudits than than he's actually given. uh, He's into double figures for league goals again, I think that's two seasons running, and he was linked with a move away a couple of seasons ago, I think Tottenham were interested in him, and he's one of these players who kind of keeps his head down, you don't really know a huge amount about him, but another one who came through... uh, at Manchester United yeah. and then kind of got farmed out and he, he's really found a home at Bournemouth and he's somebody who he scores good goals but he also scores important goals and somebody that Eddie Howe singled out for a lot of praise after the game and, and, and I think he probably deserves it because like I say he's often overlooked those other players I think if you look at him physically you know his attributes he's, he's quick he's strong and as I say he's got an eye for goal as well I think that suits playing higher up the league as well and you know, I think actually of the players that you mentioned, kind of statistically on paper, kind of attributes wise, he probably fits the bill more for that. Obviously, Wilson gets the plaudits probably a lot more because he does score a lot more goals. But I think actually, if you're looking for someone to uh, probably adapt to a different style of play, maybe Josh King is the one. Absolutely. Talking about adapting to different styles of play, that's something that Chelsea haven't had to do <laughs> at all this season because they've been fixated with Sarri Ball and again. We saw it come unstuck in a 2-0 defeat away at Everton yesterday. Yeah, the only clean sheet of the weekend. And Everton, it might be a bit of a surprise that they've <laughs> kept that clean sheet. You know, I, I, We need to be positive about them because I'm conscious that we, we've had uh, a little bit of negative feedback with regards to our negative feedback of Everton. But I think you're right. I think they do deserve credit. I think, for me, Seamus Coleman had the best game I've seen him yep. have for about I five agree. years yesterday. He looked very well, lively. Probably the second half. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think, but I think that you could say that for all of the Everton players. I think the first half was one to forget, but the second half they looked like a team who weren't willing to go through what they went through at Newcastle a week ago, and and they played for one another. They they played for the manager, and they rode their luck at times. But you have to do that against the top six side, and I think that they were they were worthy winners. It's just so frustrating from their fans' point of view because it's the biggest result of Marco Silva's reign. They've beaten a top six side, but it doesn't happen often enough. No, and you know they they did do well to weather an early Chelsea storm, and you know Hazard looked lively. Higuain had a couple of chances, and Pedro key as well. And 
I think Everton were poor in that first half. You know, they didn't really offer a huge amount. They looked disinterested and disorganised at times. And I think they were fortunate to come up against the one top six side that really, I think, on their day, anyone could be beaten at the moment, especially while they're away from home. And, yeah, they they were completely transformed in the second half. I don't know whether it was Marco Silva just whether it was a kick up the arse or whether it was just a simple lads what are we doing because this simply isn't good enough well I think I think he probably saw that the game was there for the taking yeah. and and rather than the game against Newcastle where everything kind of went to pot within 15-20 minutes of madness it, it was an opportunity where you've got 45 minutes you've shown that you're able to to, to go toe to toe with the top six side why yeah. not go out and beat them and we've got to give Richarlison credit um, nice to see that he's got two and two since our charity bet finished thank <laughs> you for that um, and I think we also need to talk about Gilfie Sigurdsson and penalties just stop giving him the ball it's ridiculous <laughs> third miss out of five this season. there must be someone else that can take penalties you know credit to him he scored the rebound he, but credit to him I, I would have backed <laughs> Every single Premier League footballer to score that that rebound. It was it was a a, a gaping goal and and he just had to tap it but in. He but almost looks like he doesn't want the penalties it's anymore. It's strange just though, isn't it? Them. Because he's such a, a great set piece taker. We've seen him score many free kicks and and you would argue that dead balls are a real speciality. So if you haven't got the confidence to step up and the fact that he's missed three out of five would suggest that there should be somebody else in that team taking them. And I remember when Everton used to have Leighton Baines on penalties yeah. and you would just know that he was going to score. I think he's only ever missed one Leighton Baines. So bring him on. Yeah, Take Sigurdsson like off and bring him on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like you say, Everton, unfortunately for them, the international breaks come at the wrong time because you would imagine a lot of their players will be going out yeah. now. And um, Marco Silva would have loved another game midweek or, or, or early, early next weekend to give them the best opportunity to pick up another three points. And... I think they need to build on this, and we've both said in recent weeks they need to give him the opportunity of at least yep. another season in charge. I think we need to have a quick word on Sarri before we go to a break, because he steadied the ship a little bit after what happened in the League Cup final, and they, they've obviously cruised through in the Europa League, picked up some decent results in the Premier League, but this was probably the biggest test since then, and, and they've kind of failed with flying colours. Yeah, you know, they, they'll rue the missed opportunities. It's no great surprise they went on to lose, as we say, and you know, second worst away record of any club since the turn of the year, second to Fulham. Um, for me, he goes at the end of the season, um, whether he's pushed or whether he walks, I think he'll go because there's, there's clearly, you know, there's more to it. I think the, the, the oh, I don't want to say the club's rotten because that sounds really, really harsh, but, you know, there's, there's a clear kind of power struggle in the dressing room and, and yeah, I think you know he's he doesn't deserve that, to be honest. So I think he has to go. The only the only thing from a Chelsea point of view is they've obviously got this transfer ban now for the next two windows. So anyone who comes in is going to have to work within those conditions, and get someone that knows the club. Then so Frank Lampard would presumably yeah, be yeah. be a name because. Jody Morris might be a good person to bring back with Lampard, who's obviously working with yeah. him at Derby at the moment, because he knows those those youth teams inside out. But I think Chelsea would have absolutely loved another summer of stability this this summer, which they haven't had for a long time. But it looks like it's going to be another one of upheaval, which isn't what you need when you can see the top two or three getting further and further away from you. Is he going? I think he probably will as well. Yep, likewise. Anyway, that's all for the Premier League this week. Join us after this short break. We'll take a trip to the Championship. Sorry, guys. I, I was going to, you know, kick it up the other end and just put one right in their fucking goal hole, but no dice. <laughs> Welcome back to part two of the Sweet Podcast, and we are taking that trip to the Championship, and it was a huge weekend and possibly a crucial one when... Looking at who will be getting those automatic promotion places, I would say that, as I said last week, really, Leeds-Sheffield United was a huge game, and after both sides won comfortably in midweek, it was it was off to Ellen Road for the early kick-off, and it was 1-0 to Sheffield United, which saw the Blades head in second place. It was a massive result, like you say, and I think, I don't know if you've seen the video of the Leeds fan kicking around online who uh, just has a complete and utter meltdown. If no, you haven't, I, haven't. I will, uh, I'll, I'll tweet that out on our account later. It's absolutely glorious. But I said last week, I fancied whoever won that one to, uh, to go up. I'm sticking with it now. I think Sheffield United have probably got enough, and much like the title race in the Premier League, I do think there'll be slips. Um, but I 
just yeah, I, I think that little bit of momentum might be the difference. And Norwich as well, crucial win for them to stretch their lead to four points. And there's no stopping them, is there? Surely. I think they'll go up. I think they've uh, they've bounced back from the one sort of disappointing result that they've had so far uh, in the last sort of six to eight weeks, w- weeks which was the game that I was at at Preston. And they looked poor in that one, but since then I think they've won pretty much every game. I said early in the season that when we played them at Carrow Road, they were the best football inside in the league, and said that about Fulham last season. And look how that's going now; they've gone up and Mystic I, Mitch. Yeah, I wonder if if Norwich would stand a chance. You know, they don't have um, they, they certainly don't have a lot of riches in terms of their squad as it stands. You know, there's a lot of hard working players in there. There's some shrewd buys and some very good young players as well. And you know, they've they've got a particular brand of football that. It would be certainly welcomed in the Premier League, but I, I don't know. I wonder whether they have got enough. I think similar to Fulham, really. If they were to go up, they need to learn not to try and blow loads yeah, yeah. of money on players that 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 got them there. Uh, sorry, on, on players to replace the ones that got them there. I think they they would be limited, but equally they've got some really good young players there as well. And and if they're able to hold on to them, then there's no reason why they couldn't strengthen and, and do what Cardiff have done this season. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, you know, in theory, the, um, the football they play is, um, it it should work in the Premier League. You know, we saw Brighton do something very similar. They didn't have uh, a huge amount of money spent on them. So, yeah, it'd be interesting. But I think going back to the league, West Brom won their second game since uh, sacking Darren Moore, possibly proving us and everyone else wrong. Um, still will maintain we're right, though, of course. Um, and then the action behind them, where it really hots up. Villa beat Middlesbrough three nil to get themselves in the playoffs, and I just I can't believe what we're seeing. You know, in the last four games, but Derby, Birmingham, Forest, and Borough conceding just one goal as well. It, it, it's on. It's very much on. And this time last month, it was off. Form team in the championship, and yeah, I, I think the the most pleasing thing is the clean sheet. Yeah, I mean, right. you've you've looked much better at the back since Tyrone Mings has come in. He's he's unreal. He's so good, and you know I underestimated how good he was. I thought he was good. Um, I would be very surprised if, even if we went up, we'd be able to capture him because, in theory, if he's fit, Bournemouth just keep him and play him every single he's game. A- he was actually linked with a move to Southampton this morning in the papers, um, saying that Bournemouth have decided that they don't want to keep him, and, and Southampton have been very impressed with his performances at Villa. But you'd imagine if you would go up, then that would be a perfect opportunity for him to, to prove his fitness and prove his worth at a club who would ideally be pretty safe if they came back up. Yeah. I, don't, I think the opposite to Norwich, really. I think with Villa, you would absolutely expect them to stay up if they came into the Premier League. I, I think that they've just got everything in place as a Premier League side that at the moment they're just playing in the wrong division. So I, I think if I was Tyrone Mings and I'd come up with Villa and I could either go back to Bournemouth, be on the sidelines, or maybe go to Southampton... I'd stick with a with a massive club. I mean that that would be nice. I think that is probably the the one kind of sticking point for us. We've got quite a few players on loan. You know the the two centre halves are doing very well at the moment, both on loan. Um, obviously Abraham as well, who you know he's only scored once in that run. Um, he's he's instrumental to the way that we play, and I, I do worry what happens if we go up because we would have to spend some money. I think it's inevitable, but as you say, we've got the foundations in place, and that's probably the most crucial part. And I think certainly out of, of of all the clubs that are in there, you, you know, we're, we're positioned well for it. And you look at Borough; if they don't get back up soon, are they do they keep dropping, or are they always going to be in and around? I'm not I'm not sure what to make of them anymore. I don't think that anyone would be particularly worried about playing them if they got into the playoffs. And no, that's the thing that the, you need form going into the playoffs. You look at the teams that have gone up in the past; they've they've generally been good in the last sort of four or five games, and. That's what Tony Pulis will be worried about because not only are they shipping goals at an alarming rate, but they're not scoring them either. No, I think you know you say that you look at Preston, you look at Sheffield Wednesday, they both continue to impress. You know, Preston a superb run. They're they're in as good form as Villa. They beat Birmingham in the last minute as well. And I think you know for those two in particular, it'd be Preston obviously haven't been up that far and and they've been close a few times. Sheffield Wednesday, it's been so long since they've been anywhere near it really. Um, I think it'd be really interesting if, if one of those two can push on and, and obviously not kick Villa out of the playoffs. It'd be, I mean, I was about to say it would be great to see Sheffield Wednesday and Villa get in the playoffs. I, I think that Steve Bruce has done a magnificent job since he's gone in there and took a lot of stick over the, the, the timing of taking that job yeah. and, and what he did before that. But he's shown how much of a great manager he is and, and, and the fact that a break's probably done in the world of good. So I, I think it would be great to see 
him and 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 both Villa get in there, and if that, if that's at the expense of somebody like Middlesbrough, then they would only really have themselves to blame because they found themselves close to the top two at at, at stages throughout the season, yeah. and they've really kind of fallen off a cliff recently. What's going on in Portugal, Michael? Wouldn't you like to know? Well, Sporting, you'll be pleased to know, picked up another three points. Good. They kicked off the weekend in the Liga Nos on Friday with a 1-0 home victory over Santa Clara. Unfortunately for Sporting, everything is as is above them because the top four just seems to be so much better than everybody else in that <laughs> division. So the, uh, the, the standings, they're still three points behind Braga in fourth. Porto are in second, they are eight points behind them, and Benfica are top on 63. So there is a battle for the top because Benfica and Porto have got the same amount of points and uh, Benfica have got a much better goal difference. But Sporting are really waiting for a slip-up from one of those teams above them to uh, to really mount the charge. They are a form side, don't they? They so are in exciting times. Anyway, that's all. Get us after this short break where we're going to take a trip to those FA Cup quarter-finals. Sana goes down in a manner that seems impossible. If I tug your jumper now, let's try it. Oh, no, you didn't fall over. That's incredible. Um, confusing for all, certainly for myself. I thought it was bizarre. Welcome back to the third part of this week's Sweeper podcast, and it's time to move on to the FA Cup quarterfinals. And it was a, a relatively muted start to the weekend. I thought that the game might have been a little bit more exciting than it was. But nonetheless, Watford got through to the semi-finals with a 2-1 home victory over the Eagles' Crystal Palace. Impressive season for Watford, and they just continue to add to that. And you know, both sides would have relished a chance to return to Wembley and a repeat of the 2006-16 even semi-final. And yeah, it was the Hornets that victored. You know, I think resting seven players in the Premier League game last week will no doubt have helped. And I think importantly, it showed how seriously they are taking this competition this season. We've had doubts over a few clubs. You know, you look at Leicester and Everton, for instance, around that area of the league, and. Yeah, you know, Watford are kind of putting all those eggs in the basket now, aren't they? Yeah, and fair play to them. Since Javi Grazia went in there, we often mocked the fact that they didn't used to look after managers for very long. They'd be in and out within six, nine-month period. And not only has he brought stability to the club, but he's brought an exciting brand of football. And yeah. defensively, they look very resolute. They've they've managed to hold on to players and actually develop them rather than signing new players, which is something that we've not really seen from Watford over the past few years and their fans deserve a trip to Wembley and not only that but I think you look at the semi-final the fact that either Watford or Wolves are going to be in the final is massively exciting because you would argue that on their day either of them could give whoever the other finalist is um, a really good game I would wholeheartedly disagree and you you look at someone like Gerard Delefeu who you know looks looks incredible at times and he showed at Everton, and and Barcelona wanted to give him a chance as well. He just he couldn't quite do it consistently, and I think he's probably found his level with where Watford are at the moment and the style of football they're playing, where he can thrive in that, and and he offers them that creativity where ultimately they have they're they're a fairly solid team, kind of in the middle of the park and at the back as well, and I think they just need that one or two kind of creative players in and around the side to just unlock the door sometimes, and he's pivotal now. Yeah, and he's playing at a team where there isn't a huge amount of pressure, and you look at the fact that he's obviously played for Barcelona before, and then he he went to Everton at a time where people expected something from him. He was a relatively big-name signing at the time, and when he went into Watford, he wasn't brilliant initially, but he's shown in recent weeks a hat-trick away at Cardiff and another really good performance in this game that he's definitely uh, probably one of the best players outside the top six. Yeah, and, you know, obviously in Dini, they've got someone who just drags them up when they seem to be lagging and struggling to find a breakthrough, and he's just a batter around, isn't he? he? He must be so difficult to play against because he's so unconventional, and he's, he's you know, he's got good ability on the ball as well. He's... He's not only just a handful to to make bring other players into the game. He's um, he's 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 fantastic himself at times as well. You know he's almost unplayable at times, and it's almost you have to kind of switch him on to to get him in that mode. But then alongside him, they've got Andre Gray, who obviously scored the winner. He offers them something different. You know, quick bursts of pace, and we've seen over the last few weeks that the two of them linking up together is is starting to be a little bit more fruitful. Yeah, and I think Dini acted as a decoy for the winning goal. Obviously, he wanted the ball to be played to him, and it was... Uh, part of me initially thought it was a delightful ball through to, to, to Andre Gray, and then you look at it a second time, and he kind of has to stretch for it, the yeah. contact that he makes. I think it comes off the toe of his boot. I think the goalkeeper has to take some responsibility, not just for 
that moment but he looked uncomfortable all game he was flying out for crosses that he was nowhere near and flapping at balls which he really should have got more to and that probably gave Watford more confidence about getting the ball into the box early and it just showed on that on that second goal and obviously there were a couple of nervy moments towards the end Palace could have stolen an equaliser when Wambasaka dragged yeah. wide but I don't think that would have been a deserved equaliser I think on the balance of play Watford probably deserved that and that's it I think you know Crystal Palace will look back on this and they'll be disappointed there was a lot of wasted chances and, and really other than the goal again batch wise at the centre of that they they kind of brought him in to be that consistent striker they've just not had and it hasn't worked and you know for him as well it it's going to be another summer where he goes back to Chelsea and as we've said previously they've got the the transfer ban potentially he gets a chance now he stays there and um you know they they only have Higuain and and um Giroud really so they they might use him but he hasn't really put himself in the shop window which is exactly what he should have been doing at Crystal Palace yeah and he's one of these who will have one really good game and then one really bad game and I think my favourite part of his involvement on the weekend was he seemed to lose his marbles a bit after he scores. Um, we <laughs> saw in the the World Cup for Belgium during the summer he <laughs> celebrating a teammate's goal, pinged the ball off the post and hit himself in the face. And in trying to celebrate against Watford, I think he managed to fall over in front of all the Watford fans. Legs went from underneath him and looked pretty sheepish after that. So I think he needs a little bit more practice at celebrations and that will only come by being <laughs> yeah, a more consistent yeah. footballer. But it's a good point about Chelsea. He could go back there and you never know. You'd, you'd argue mobility-wise he's much better than Giroud and uh, Giroud's getting on now. It's not like he's going to have many seasons left where he can play that many games. Yeah. So a decent op- option for Chelsea to have, for sure. Especially if they're in the Europa League as well, which... Watford might find themselves in, who knows um, just a quick word on Jorelio Gomez who was uh, in tears at the final whistle, he's 99% sure he's retiring at the end of the season cup keeper, so perhaps a, a final hurrah, he's, he's definitely a character hasn't he? Yeah and I think you could you could afford him that in the same way that you look at someone like Peter Cech, it would be a great way for him to go out of, of the English game and, and retire from being a goalkeeper with a Europa League yeah. final appearance and I hope for for Herelio Gomez's sake, it would be nice to see Watford get there. But equally, there'll be probably quite a few Wolves players who will have a, a similar sort of journey planned. It, it may well be that they feel like they're they're getting to the end of their Wolves careers because they want to take that 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 next step. So for them to get to the final, it would be a perfect opportunity to to sign off in the right way. You mentioned Wolves there, um, a, a two-one victory over Manchester United in in a game where. VAR was used and, and used properly. It was a huge win for Wolves, and and it was fully deserved. And you know they they were excellent throughout and, and really put Manchester United to the sword. It, it's probably also worth noting that whilst United were were very poor, it was probably their worst performance under the new regime. But Wolves, they they looked like they probably still would have had another level themselves. Yeah, I I, I mean we we taught Manchester United up a lot over the last few weeks, and we've discussed how great they've been in games and the fact that Solskjaer's got them into a position where we didn't expect them to be and along the way there are going to be setbacks and I think to try and keep the level of performance up that they've been capable of in recent weeks was always going to be difficult and Wolves probably sniffed a, I don't even know if it is an upset in this game because you would argue that Wolves have performed adequately against the majority of the top six all season so probably thought they had a really good chance in this and they just looked more up for it than Manchester United did they were they were first to, to to balls that were that you would expect to be 50-50s. I mean, the opening goal is a goal that they have no right to score, but it's just the work ethic of Raul Jimenez that makes it an opportunity. And you look at the the saves that Sergio Romero makes in the game, and it could have been 4 or 5 nil. Yeah, yeah, I thought the midfield was superb. Neves and Messina ran the game. Then Donka was lively. And two centre-halves as well. They, they marshalled kind of any threat that United offered. You've got Doherty and Johnny who flew forward and I thought it was really interesting to see the stats before the game that the most long passes between two players this season was Cody and Doherty you know it's such an effective tactic that is just so well drilled as well you know we saw Liverpool do it yesterday against Fulham as well and it's just becoming an absolute staple of of successful sides now that it it pushes back the the other um, fullbacks so you know you look at Luke Shaw and um, it was Dallow in this one they were almost anonymous until the last kind of 10 minutes where they had no choice but to push forward and uh, you know that that's fantastic planning and, and that goes back to the organisation that 
uh, Nuno Espirito Santo puts in place where, you know, Sarri criticised that against Chelsea last week, but it just purely is just drilling into them. And it's that consistency of keeping the same players as well. Of course it is. And I I think that there was an element of jealousy from Sarri after that game last weekend. He was disappointed with his players. And I think that Wolves just looked like a, a more cohesive unit. And you could argue the same happened during the game against Manchester United. There's there's so many great individuals in that team and the worry from a Wolves point of view when they came up was that that would be the problem, that, that the team ethic and, and everything that they built up in the Championship would be difficult to replicate. But the most important thing from their point of view is they didn't make wholesale changes. They came up with a squad who were capable of competing and although they made some signings, they've they've strengthened in areas that they had to rather than areas that, that maybe they they didn't have to. And they've given themselves a huge opportunity now to finish seventh in the Premier League and to get to an FA Cup final. And if it is Manchester City who they play in the uh, in the final, that obviously I think a lot of people expect that to be the case, then there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't see them beating them. No, I agree, and I, you know, I think the bigger the bigger pitch falls is an interesting one. What what do they have to do to progress now? Because they, as we said, they've got a small and compact squad, and you know, bringing players in could arguably disrupt it. You know, we've we've spoken about if they'd have brought Tammy Abraham in, Jimenez now is is one of the former strikers from the Premier League. He looks so comfortable at this level and you wonder what they would have to do to, to kind of raise the quality within the squad. And I think, again, you know, looking at potentially qualifying for Europe in the near future, is where where do we go with that one? Because they're going to need a bigger squad. They're simply going to have to deal with that. They've been lucky with injuries this season. At some point, they have to add to it. But that's the, that's the thing. When you're on a good run, players often want to play and, and, and sometimes injuries are avoidable because players look after themselves better and I heard a couple of interviews earlier on in the season where um, the BBC went to Wolverhampton and they spoke to the medical staff and they just said that as far as they were concerned everything that they were doing off the pitch medically was actually a step forward than the majority of the other Premier League sides and they want to be the best at every single aspect they can be yeah. and I'm sure teams like Manchester City and and Manchester United and Liverpool also have those aims. But a team like Wolves can possibly concentrate on the off-pitch things a little bit more because there's less pressure, there's less limelight, and it will be fascinating to see what happens next season, whether they make that all-important push for the top four or the top six, or whether they're happy to consolidate in seventh, knowing that by bringing players in, that might put a few noses out of joint, as we discussed with what happened at Fulham. Yeah, you know, Manchester United has said they they were poor. Um, You know, Pogba couldn't get into the game. We've already said about the full-backs, you know, Rashford didn't have his greatest game either, and it'll be disappointing because it was a huge chance for silverware as well. You know, Solskjaer has has aimed to get something from this season, a trophy, and, you know, they, they now have probably the hardest competition to try and go for in the Champions League, and I, I... I don't think looking back from kind of what they've had to go through at the end of the season, it will be a major loss if they don't win anything. But obviously, this was a realistic opportunity to do so. So I think that you know they will be disappointed. Uh, they have to move on. They have to still make sure they qualify for the Champions League, and that's probably the most important thing for them now. I'd say. Yeah, we haven't really got on to VAR too much when it comes to the FA Cup quarterfinals. But before we move on to the next game, which was marred by the lack of VAR. Yeah. Um, we need to discuss the Victor Lindelof decision because it's the first time I've seen a red card overturned. I don't yeah, know about you no, since it's been brought sure. in. Um, I thought it was a good decision yeah. and I also thought it was a quick decision which makes a massive difference in these scenarios. Chris Kavanagh, who was in the little VAR booth, wherever that might be, he, he decided to overturn it and Martin Atkinson actually explained it on screen. I think you could you could see from the way that, that his lips were moving the message that he was trying to get across and if it's done in the right way, then it can be a really great tool. But I think the problem is, A, the lack of it across the board in this competition, um, and and B, the fact that in games where you don't have it, you then end up with far more talking points because you discuss it from both ways. Yeah, and that brings us nicely on Swansea 2, Manchester City 3. And it it was heartbreaking to watch at times, you know. Um, I, ju- I don't understand why we're not using it across the board or just not using it at all. You know, sw- and I, so the the kind of excuses it's used in Premier League stadiums, which is fair enough. Swansea is, is a Premier League stadium. You know, it has hosted Premier League football for kind of three, four, five years, whatever it was. It, it you can do it. Surely you can adapt to it. And I think it's not a level playing field. As soon as you take it out of using it across the board in a particular round, it's just not a level playing field. And and we've seen that. 
yes, Swansea may not have won this game. You know, they're playing arguably one of the best sides in Europe. So it, it, they don't necessarily need to be blaming VAR for it. But I think it's just frustrating. It's frustrating as football fans to see that. You know, they talk about the magic of the FA Cup. The, the magic is just taken away completely with something like this. Yeah, and there was a point raised on television on Saturday evening, which was that they could understand if it wasn't used at Newport, but it should have been used at Swansea. I completely disagree with that. I, I think that I, I totally get your point about the fact that it's an ex-Premier League ground. It was for probably seven or eight years up to last season. But that shouldn't make a difference. Like you say, it should either be all or nothing. You should yeah. have it in all of them or, or none of them. And the fact that... I mean, all, presumably all you need is more cameras, more camera angles. You can beam back to a studio. We've well, seen well, that. We, well, we, uh, that's it. We can make the decisions based on the coverage that we see. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason why they can't do it. And I think that's the most frustrating thing is that technology now is so advanced that why can't you have something where you're able to make these decisions across the board? And that's what will be a huge disappointment not just for Swansea but also for Brighton, Wolves and Watford because if Manchester City go out on Saturday evening then you would argue there's an opportunity for any of those four sides to win the cup on the day Um, whereas now it makes it a huge amount more difficult because of the the decisions that went for Manchester City in that game the Aguero goal although marginal is offside Sean Massey's looking across the line Um, and I think you've also got another opportunity with the penalty to to look at it from from a different angle and and if you do look at it from a different angle I know obviously Aguero didn't score directly from that it comes off the back of the goalkeeper but he's in that position because of an incorrect refereeing yeah. decision and that's the the most frustrating thing yeah it it is frustrating but we have to give Swansea a huge amount of credit you know they've limped along in the championship this season the owners haven't quite turned out to be what they promised They've kind of asset stripped the, the the club, which is disappointing to see. You know, the squad hasn't had much of any investment, but Graham Potter has still come in, done a fantastic job, and you know, in doing so, he's brought through a number of academy players, and and he's got the team playing the type of football that I'd say those fans enjoyed watching when they were promoted to the Premier League all those years ago. And you know, the second goal for me was was the goal of the weekend. Uh, they more than matched Manchester City. They played out from the back one and two touch as they progressed up the pitch and the finish from Chilina was, was, was top draw as well against his former club and that's against a very strong lineup from Manchester City and yeah, as you, you know, we I, we shouldn't be talking about VAR all the time. It it's it's a modern day travesty that we still are, but it's yeah, when you when you see Swansea performing like that it's very disappointing. Just a quick correction on my part, I've just realised Sean Massey was at the Brighton um, yes, Millwall was, game and was. there was a we'll talk about that afterwards yeah so. yeah there was there was there was one in that game which I obviously got mixed up with so I, I think that's what that's what we need to take out of this we saw a brilliant game of football between two teams willing to attack and actually go for it in the FA Cup and the 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 annoying side of it is that we do have to talk about the decisions that came out of the game but I think you need to give immense credit to Swansea I think Graham Potter's done a massive job there a club who are unfortunately on a bit of a downward spiral at the moment. They've come out of the Premier League and the money's not been reinvested. Nobody really knows what's going on off the pitch, but he's brought stability on it. And yep. he's not only done that, he's he's enabled them to play the Swansea way, which everybody saw Brendan Rodgers, Roberto Martinez, and, and sometimes under, under Carlos Carvajal, it kind of looked like it was getting back to that as well. So I think that Swansea, aside from the decisions, should still be praised for the fact that they gave Manchester City such a great game it's just like we say over and over again a shame that that the effort and the amount of work that they put into that game didn't give them more of a reward should Pep Guardiola offer to replay the game rather than just apologize that is like a Danny Mills style question yeah I, I I just I just think it's it's bonkers how these questions get raised the 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 way that managers interact with the media nowadays unfortunately stands us in a place where you can get questions like this posed and 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 I just don't really know where to start on it I think that some people should stick to being a a commentator on games that don't really matter and others shouldn't be interviewed on 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 matters like this are they still on for the quadruple they've them? I I heard on the radio this morning they've come in they were 300 to 1 at the start of the season they're now 7 to 2 so yeah. the bookies will be worried um 
And I still don't think it'll happen. I think that it will be a step too far in the Champions League. Um, I think that their draw against Tottenham is is harder than a lot of people think. And the fact that the second leg of that, uh, sorry, the uh, the the leg in North London is going to be played at the yeah. new stadium, I think could be absolutely massive for Tottenham. I think the atmosphere that's generated in that game could be huge. So I still think the Champions League may be where they fall down. And obviously they're now in second place in the Premier League as well. So it's a difficult one, but I, I just don't see it happening. On to the final game of the weekend. Millwall 2, Brighton 2. However, penalties. Bloody penalties. I love penalties. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Um... But before we get there, another VAR shocker. And, you know, it was a really enjoyable game as well. And and, and again, it's a shame that we're having to look at it. But I think, you know, if we, we look at the game first, I think the weather reflected how it went, personally. Brighton arguably created the better chance in the first half when the sun was out. However, the doom and gloom came. We were in Millwall at the Den. There was horrible wind and rain, and Millwall came into their own. They did, yeah, and they obviously took the lead and doubled it quite quickly while the weather was torrential. Um, The first goal was touch and go as to whether there was a foul in the build-up, but a great set piece nonetheless. And obviously the build-up for the second was kind of Premier League quality. It was a good finish, and I think that was overlooked a little bit in the analysis of the game. The, The way that Millwall have gone up against these Premier League sides so far in the competition shows the lack of fear that that sides in the Championship have and I think on their day any side will will struggle at the den and the most disappointing thing from their point of view is you get to the 88th minute and you look to be sailing I mean Brighton did okay and it was only really the introduction of Solly March that 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 kind of turned the game on its head and obviously we'll talk about the first goal first because Licardia's finish was for me one of the goals of the the great finals, yeah, it was a great turn, and we haven't seen enough of that from him. Um, maybe that's his level. Maybe, maybe the championship is yeah, where possibly. where where he he should be playing. But it was what happened after that 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 caused some some real headlines, wasn't it? Ah, oh, so sad to see, wasn't it? I just, I don't. I mean, so the ball sent in, and you know, Chris Hutton said he was that they were fuming at how bad the ball was originally. It overhit the ball, and you know it was effectively the last kick of the game. They're desperate for an equaliser, and it just goes into the keeper's hands. But it doesn't go into the keeper's hands. His hands aren't even ready to catch the ball. I just don't. I genuinely have no idea what was going on, and I don't know whether anything's come out since as to what he was trying to do. But I think even if you look at some of the camera angles, the ball's potentially going out of play as well. Yeah, I, he's just had a moment, hasn't he? And I think he realised straight away and. Is he trying to leave it? Was he in two minds as to whether to leave it? I or? think I think he just got his angles wrong. I think he thought that it might be sailing past the post, yeah. so he took his hand away and then realised that actually by taking his hand away, the ball deflected in off his glove. And I think from that moment, even when Glenn Murray misses the first penalty in the shootout, I still thought Brighton would go through. I just thought psychologically yeah. it, it had a big impact on everyone in that stadium and, and, and also the goalkeeper. And it would have been great to see him be the hero in the shootout but obviously it wasn't to be but that was it you know going into the shootout you want to be as confident as possible you want to know that you've made some great saves which he had at that point as well you know both him and Ryan had, had kept both of the sides in the game so it it was it was a disappointing way for it to end but I think you know Brighton I think there were some great penalties you know you look at Murray's aside the, and, and the ones that m- were missed subsequently the quality of penalties was really high. Yeah, apart from the last one, and that one was really high. Yeah. That was a long <laughs> way over the bar. Uh, we need to just touch on it again. VAR in normal time. Obviously, Shane Ferguson's had a complete and utter out-of-body... Dread, just dreadful. Yeah. He, what a horrible, horrible challenge. And it's difficult to, to really want Brighton... Uh, to want Millwall to win at that point when you've got Neil Harris on the sidelines arguing the decision um, <laughs> when he's clearly raked his studs down the back of somebody and then stamped on the back of their yeah. heel and... Lewis Dunk's not the kind of player who goes down easily either and it's just one of those where unfortunately Millwall had done so much great on the pitch it kind of all went out the window at that point and Brighton had a goal incorrectly ruled off which was nowhere near offside and this is the one that I was talking about with Sean Massey who generally is one of the better officials as well and that that was probably the worst decision of the weekend for me yeah and and I suppose she'll be relieved that that didn't affect the final result and, and so will Glenn Murray because 
he was the one player at the end of the penalties who, rather than running down and celebrating with all the Brighton players, he stood there and he shook all the hands of the Millwall players. And he's been there. He's a seasoned professional. And it wouldn't surprise you to see him do all right at Wembley against Manchester City because we've seen in games where they've come up against physical strikers, sometimes the likes of Otamendi have uh, struggled. And I'm personally glad that they did get Manchester City in. It's Watford versus Wolves because... As we said before, I yeah, I think out of the three other teams, I would fancy either Watford or Wolves to to possibly give it a go. Probably Wolves more so yeah, um, in the final. But you know, I, I think Brighton needs to just concentrate on staying up first and foremost. I'm still slightly concerned by them in the league, but yeah, Watford and Wolves is a real opportunity for them. And you know, Manchester City could still be challenging for, for you know the the league will be finished, but they could be in the Champions League final, which is really on paper it's more important than the FA Cup final as well of course it is and that's it we are done for the FA Cup we have chalked off the championship we've finished with the Premier League and uh, we've got quite an exciting final part for you we're going to preview England we're going to have a little quiz and then we're uh, we're going to update you with how you can get in contact with us lovely old job ladies and gentlemen England will be playing for for fucking Welcome back to the final part of this week's Sweeper Podcast, and we're going to talk England, Mitch. England! It's been oh, a while, hasn't it? Yeah, I'm excited. It's it, it feels like it's been pretty much since summer. I can't even remember what's been happening since, but I'm just still buoyed from the uh, from the World Cup. Yeah, and. Uh, the squad's looking good. I think we've probably got more strength in depth than we've ever had, despite the fact that there's been a few withdrawals this morning. John Stones, Jordan Henderson and Ruben Loftus-Cheek have decided that the fact that uh, in Stones and Loftus-Cheek they've basically not played since Christmas, but yeah. they're uh, they're injured. They can't make it. So uh, a certain set-piece specialist from the South Coast has had a call-up. Matt Letizia? No, 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 no. James Ward-Prowse is in the squad, and I think that... It's a deserved place in the squad for Prousey. The the issue that I had with Southgate omitting him from the squad initially was the fact that he blamed it on the fact that he'd only just got back in the Southampton team, but he was willing to pick a couple of players in Fabian Delph and Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who'd made between them about 200 minutes worth of Premier League appearances. Not bitter, though, are you? Whereas James Ward-Prowse has played every game since Christmas. But not that I've done any research, and no, not that I'm bitter. It's just nice to see a Southampton player in there because uh, Alex McCarthy's dropped out and uh, we don't have as many players in that, in that England squad as we have done in recent years. But it's exciting, like you say, we've got players like Kane and Rashford, we've got Sterling, we've got Sancho, we've got Declan Rice who might come in for, yeah. his, uh, for his first appearance. You'd imagine the fact that he's in the squad, he's going to get a minute or two. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I wonder. I mean, So we've got home game against Czech Republic on Friday, Montenegro away on Monday, both Euro 2020 qualifiers, but I wonder whether we've got enough strength and depth now to potentially do a bit of rotating. I mean, you know, Rice potentially gets the nod anyway, but I'm, I'm not sure, especially, you know, Jordan Henderson dropping out. Is it between him and Dyer to start in centre midfield? Who knows? But you look at the full-backs, for some bizarre reason, we've got three right-backs and three left-backs in the squad, and there's questions as to who starts anyway. I think we've, we've seen in Kyle Walker, he's more of a centre-back, right back now isn't he? he he can do both roles I'm surprised that Kieran Trippi has got in the squad because he's been yes. terrible really since the last international break we, we, we've we seen his form drop off a cliff and he's not even guaranteed that starting berth for Tottenham now with Aurier snapping at his heels I think for me Trent Alexander-Arnold is now the best right back in England yep, I think he's I'd probably agree. overtaken Kyle Walker but Kyle Walker can slot into a back three quite nicely if that's the way that we decide to play the great thing about the Euro 2020 qualifying is the fact that we've already got a playoff place regardless of yeah. how we get on in this. I still fully expect us to top the group and get through to Euro 2020 on merit, but if we can have a good start to the to the qualifying process, then it gives Southgate a bit more of an opportunity, like you say, to, to bring in some fringe players for the games further on in the competition. Yeah, it's definitely exciting, isn't it? I mean, there's... There's players that are, you know, coming through in the Championship and the Premier League that aren't even getting remote looking at the minute as well, and I think that's the exciting thing. Actually, you know, Euro 2020 could be the end for some of these players. You know, it's a, it's a natural conclusion for some of them. Even not at a particularly, you know, there's there's not many players that are you would deem to be too old to be in the squad now, but it's just a, a cycle, of, a, yeah, fresh faced approach and. I think that's really exciting because you know we've got an opportunity for some silverware this summer, 
Um, we've got uh, really we've got an opportunity for silverware next summer as well, and I think you know we have to build on that. And to see someone like Sancho in the squad, who realistically isn't going to start either of those games this this week, but will play a key role. He's absolutely tearing it up in Germany, and if it was you know kind of two years ago. He'd probably be starting now because the the pressure to start him would be immense. Whereas now, there's not even journalists, there's not even fans saying he's got to start. You know, there, there just isn't. And I think that's probably the most encouraging thing for me that we've got such a uh, a, a well versed squad now in terms of the experience they've got, despite being at such a young age. That there's no calls to to drop anyone. Yeah, and I think now the country look forward to international breaks, whereas previously you kind of dreaded them as a football fan because although England would likely pick up victories, they weren't always in the right way and we didn't really see a very enjoyable style of football. Whereas under Gareth Southgate, it, it's really been turned on its head and since the World Cup, everyone's on, on side really now with the national team and it's exciting to see what they could achieve in the summer, like you say, but more importantly, whether they could go all the way in Euro 2020. Should we get to the quiz? Let's do it. When the rainy days are dying, gotta keep on, keep on trying. All the bees and birds are flying. Ah, never let go, gotta hold on in. Now stop till the break of dawn in. Keep moving, don't stop rocking. Here we go then with the quiz, Michael. What you got for me? I have got a similar standard of questions to the ones that you asked me last week. I've got the new points bonanza question in there with actually an opportunity for you to score five points this week I not just four need it as well, don't I? Uh, need what are the scores at the moment uh 26-19 so a seven point lead but you could feasibly get nine points wow, this week which is uh it's huge it is huge indeed or i could get none unlikely i would say so we're going to kick you off with a nice exciting question b is for boring. Which Premier League team drew the most games in 2018? So across the whole year, yeah. not just the season, which Premier League team drew the most games? Oh, that is a good question, Michael. There was 13 draws in that period for this team. I will go with... Oh, interesting. I will go with Bournemouth. Bournemouth is incorrect. You're not far off, though, geographically. Southampton? It was Southampton really? with 13 draws, yep. I thought there'd be a lot of losses in there. Thank you, there were, funnily enough. W <laughs> is for WKD. In 2015-16, Jamie Vardy set the record for scoring in consecutive Premier League games. I just want you to tell me, how many games oh. did the run last for? 13. It was 11, <sighs> I'm afraid. We're going to go for your 50-50 now to get you back on track. N yeah. is for North London. Spurs announced last week that they will play their first game at the new White Hart Lane Stadium against Crystal Palace. What I'd like to know is whether the capacity at the new stadium will be more or less than the Emirates. Oh, I genuinely have no idea there it's going to be quite close I'm there's sure. eight there's about 1800 in it right okay i will say I mean, you would you would think they'd try and squeeze them in just to get some bragging rights but they're actually pretty big i'm gonna go for the emirates <laughs> it's the new white heart lane mitch you were right to think they yeah, would they would just, they would just do it like that yeah tottenham's Why new ground will be uh, 62,062, and Arsenal's is 60,260. So, here's your big chance. God. Five points riding on this, but you have to give your answer within five seconds on okay. how many you're going to go for. Yeah. So, your options are one to five. D is for Denmark. Which five Danish players have scored or assisted in the Premier League this season? God. Five, four, three, two... Or one. Tell me now, how many are you going to go Three. for? Three. Okay. And I genuinely so, don't know. Um, hey, so just to, give again. You, just to give you a little bit more context, Mitch has got to get all three to get three points here. If he gets two, then he gets no points. So D is for Denmark. Which five Danish players have scored or assisted in the Premier League this season? So you've got to tell me three. Come on, kick off with the most Christian obvious Christian Eriksson. Is correct. And now he's struggling. Now we're struggling. <laughs> um, I'll give you a big ooh, clue on this one. Ooh. Or maybe I don't have to give you a big clue. Go has on. one got a nickname? Yes, he has. Yes. Zanka. Yes, yes, indeed. 
And the other three, to give you a clue, play in the bottom half of the Premier League. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think whether you're big, big long man is Danish or not. Uh, is your big long man Danish? I don't know. I'm really struggling, Danes. Well, just remember, you only need one more. No, I know. Yes, yeah. I just, you know, me. I like to, I like to get in there with the answers pretty quick. Like you did on that Arsenal Tottenham one. Yes. Um. Oh no, he's not. No, ignore that. I thought I thought I was going to have one then, but he's not. Uh, God. Who's in the bottom half? So I'm really sorry about this. I'm going to have to think about it. I need the points. There's people shouting at the um, podcast listening device at the moment. So just to recap, Mitch is trying to get three Danish players to have scored or assisted in the Premier League this season. So far, he's got Christian Eriksen and he's got Matthias Jorgensen, also known as Zanka from Huddersfield. There are three more. He only needs one of them for three massive points. God, I'm really struggling. I'm going to have to give you a five-second limit here, Mitch. I, I'm i going to have to go Vestergaard because I can't think of anyone. Big Yannick is incorrect, I'm afraid. Where's but he from? Is he Danish? He's Danish, right. but he's dreadful. Um, You're in the right team, though. There's one from Southampton who I'm surprised you didn't go for. Pierre-Emile Hoiberg. Ah. Uh, I always think he's German. And then you could have had Philip Billing from Huddersfield or Kenneth Zahor from Cardiff. What a load of shite. <laughs> so, so I need this big time. You do. And your final question is quite an interesting one as yeah. well. B is for bottom eight. Who is the Premier League's top scorer outside the top 12 this season? So this player plays for a bottom eight side yeah. and he's the top scorer in the Premier League this season out of those teams. So discount Bournemouth, discount Everton, discount Wolves, anyone like that. It's got to be from either Newcastle, Crystal Palace, Brighton, Southampton, Burnley, Cardiff, Fulham or Huddersfield. And he's got 11 Premier League goals. So it's between two, okay, which is Murray and Mitrovic. Right. And I will go with Mitrovic. It's Glenn Murray, Mitch. <laughs> Which pretty much sums up your um, quiz there, Yeah, so basically I've semi-known most of the answers, but haven't got any right. You could have had about seven points there. You've yeah. ended up with none, unfortunately. Brilliant. Well, if you want to lambast me online, get on uh, on Twitter at The Sweep Pod, Instagram and Facebook, search The Sweep Podcast. Email us at thesweeppodcast at gmail.com. And whilst we're on it, Get subscribing, rate and reviewing everywhere you like. Indeed. Thank you very much for joining us this week. It's been an episode full of FA Cup, Premier League, Championship and international football. And we'll look forward to rounding up a lot of that international football and look forward to the return of the Premier League the next time we speak to you. We're going to score one more than you. It's not difficult after that quiz. Fuck off quiz. one actually which would you rather fight one horse sized duck or 100 duck sized horses uh, I'd rather fight a big duck <laughs>